everybody, welcome to the uh, Flexible Dieting Institute. I'm wondering where I'm at. We haven't done this in two months. We're going to do a, a research review on our Flexible Dieting Institute. Uh, this will be in a whole series of, of episodes, I think, that you're going to want to see if you like what we cover here. Uh, I'll show you some of those in a second. But this one today, if you read my post, uh, is, is about the flexibility of the dynamics between how our body toggles between using fat sources or lipids and glucose or glycogen. And it really was fascinating to me. I, I, I read this paper word for word probably three times before I even decided to use it as a research review because there's just so much here. And I wanted to make sure it was all relevant to what anybody here would want to apply it toward. And when it comes to just explaining nutrition and fat loss in general, it's fantastic, as I hope you'll see. But then it also has some some great application for uh, extremists, those people who compete in physique sport and so forth. So uh, just real quick here, the adaptive reciprocity of lipid and glucose metabolism in human short-term starvation. And that's something I almost want to parenthetically describe that, first of all, starvation in you know, nutrition literature means that you have just stopped eating for any amount of time. You could you could miss a meal and call it a starvation study. It just kind of means fasting. Um, they did go up to, I believe, three to four days of fasting in this study to look at some of the dynamics. And if you are familiar with some of our, our research reviews on the metabolic switch or metabolic adaptation or metabolic homeostasis, you'll see why that's important because your body goes through a cycle of substrates for energy use very predictably. But the variables that we're interested in are, uh, is there a speed at which is most appropriate? So when we're going through this, this calorie deficit, uh, what happens if you alter those macronutrients at all? So we'll kind of combine some of the research we're already familiar with. And then is are there long-term effects? Uh, and so we're going to cover all of that. Uh, let, let me jump right in here. Uh, I, I always apologize when I have narrative-heavy slides because I hate that you have to sit here and listen to me read this stuff. But this this research paper, this this review is, is pretty heavy, and I and I just want to make sure I give you guys some some very precise information. So. The human organism has tools to cope with metabolic challenges like starvation that are crucial for survival. Lipolysis, lipid oxidation, ketone body synthesis, tailored endogenous glucose production and uptake and decreased glucose oxidation serve to protect against excessive erosion of protein mass, which is a predominant supplier of carbon chains for synthesis of newly formed glucose. So all of that is saying is, as I mentioned, we go through this, this cyclical process of using energy that's internal inside of our body stored when we don't have enough. And so you can just enter into a calorie deficit that's pretty mild. You can be on a low-fat diet, a low-carb diet, a balanced diet. You could be fasting, like obviously intermittent fasting is, is a bit of a craze right now. But what uh, the premise, as these researchers are, are describing here, is that the end result is when you take dieting too far, as in your calories are too low, maybe you're dieting to too lean of a body mass, or you are literally fasting, uh, your body will eventually start to dip into lean body mass. So the carbon chains for synthesis of newly formed glucose, gluconeogenesis, the process of primarily using amino acids to turn into glucose. We want to stay away from that. 
So lipolysis being body fat loss, same with lipid oxidation, ketone body synthesis, a byproduct of, of lipolysis. Uh, and then the you know glucose production, how our body creates in that calorie deficit when we're turning to lipid oxidation, you know, turning that into fuel, into glucose or ketone bodies for us to use. So the, the whole premise is just to say, we know this is a, a predictable cyclical event. Let's, let's talk about all those different pieces and what we can discern as kind of the, the best way to do it. So the importance of reciprocity in lipid and glucose metabolism. So again, carbs and fats, we're going to metabolize them differently. Uh, we have them stored in our body in different forms. We can consume them, of course, separately. Uh, and our body uses them separately. So the importance of reciprocity, how that toggling goes back and forth uh, during human starvation should be taken into account when studying lipid and glucose metabolism in general and even in pathophysiological conditions. So right from the jump, they are saying that even though this is a starvation model, because we want to just across the board, make sure we see this process as rapidly as we can for the purposes of study they are saying both in the premise and in the conclusion that this is the same at different speeds. You should take this into account when studying it uh, in general, not just starvation, and specifically in some pathophysiology or phys physiology, which we're going to talk about kind of at the end, you know, why they were doing this for application to diabetes and so forth. So as I mentioned, if you look into our YouTube channel, which is the Diet Doc or on any you know, platform, Apple, Spotify, et cetera. You, you can find some of these other series, metabolic switch, metabolic adaptation, metabolic homeostasis, the science of hormones, the science of hunger. A lot of this stuff that we're going to talk about today is anchored in that. And so that could be very helpful for you. Uh, the human organism has extensive fuel reserves that can meet energy demands for, for substantial periods of time that are represented mainly by adipose tissue. To enable this starvation response, profound changes occur in neuroendocrine homeostasis with counter-regulatory activities by growth hormone, cortisol, glucagon, catecholines, blah, blah, blah. So again, the reason I wanted to, to lay out some of their phrasing here word by word is it's really a well-written position paper. So first of all, we have extensive fuel reserves. If you've heard me talk about metabolic positioning or the metabolic switch, you know, I talked about stored glycogen in the liver as a very dynamic moment by moment buffer for internal energy substrates. Of course, we start with the blood products, blood amino acids, blood lipids, blood glucose, then liver glycogen, then they do a great job. I mean, this is, I haven't read anything this good on this subject in probably 30 years in the way they describe the metabolic switch without even referencing it. So they're talking about these, these intermediate energy stores. Uh, and they say the main one, of course, is adipose tissue. Body fat is where we have the, the preponderance of, of stored energy. Um, but here's what's really, really key. When you start dieting, whether it's just you know, a little bit of fasting, a little bit of, um, you know, calorie reduction, uh, time-restricted eating, uh, you're following macronutrient profiles and energy balance levels, certain amount of calories, you're going to follow this pattern just a little bit more slowly than we show it here in a fasting state. But they said right away, there are profound changes that occur to neuroendocrine homeostasis. And so the body starts to react. 
This is what's critical for a dieter to know. And they are combated by counter-regulatory activities. So part of the body is like, er, I don't want to have to deal with this because we don't want to get into uh, adaptation that's that's you know, not useful. We want Your body wants to preserve things like heart function, lean body mass, and so forth. So there are protective mechanisms, counter-regulatory in place, to, to kind of balance out what's happening with those, those energy demands, whether you are fasting, quote, starving, or just in a calorie deficit. So let me get to the next slide here. Uh, in this review, we discussed the metabolic adaptation to starvation in humans with special focus on the interaction between lipid and glucose metabolism. Short-term starvation demonstrates that the human organism has the intriguing physiological capacity to selectively adapt insulin sensitivity to modulate in a tissue-specific manner the production, uptake, oxidation, and storage of glucose and lipids. So again, lipids and glucose, two different substrates, carbs and fat in our diet, and not only does our body have the ability, as it said, again, just so, so well phrased, uh, where did it go there? Um, do, 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 selective, selectively adapt insulin sensitivity. I, I'm going to take a kind swipe at the ketogenic crowd a couple times here, because some of the things that they apply short term are not at all what happens long term. And this is a key component of this paper describing the selective uh, sensitivity that our body has toward insulin. Uh, it, it's it's really, really important. When I, when I said I, I read this paper three times, just line by line before I even decided to use it, this is part of why it intrigued me. Uh, th there's, there's something that's very counterintuitive in that all of the people in the low carb community just completely overlook. Uh, moreover, this adaptive insulin sensitivity and associated changes in energy metabolism enable us to speculate on the mechanisms of insulin resistance in conditions with lipid or caloric overload. So uh, we, this should get a little bit lighter now. I hope this becomes a little bit more easier uh, or easier to, to stay with here. But we're going to talk about some of these energy pathways, how our body goes from those lipid and glucose products in the bloodstream, even amino acids, into the stored energy levels, and then ultimately to body fat, and then why it's important that our body has the capacity to toggle between glucose and lipid metabolism and oxidation, and what happens. Uh, there's a critical, critical timing piece. So during starvation or, you know, interchange the word fasting or to slow it down, just calorie restriction, plasma fatty acid levels increase within 14 hours after the last meal. So this should ring a bell to you guys when we talk about metabolic positioning or the metabolic switch. Why after consuming your last meal, would there be a massive increase in blood fatty acids, you know, blood lipids? Because your your liver's empty. I mean, you're you're virtually done with glycogen that can be donated into your bloodstream. So now your body has to switch. That's where the metabolic switch comes in, over to liberating fatty acids, lipids in your bloodstream to be then turned into glucose. So the relevance of increased levels of plasma fatty acids, which are important substrates for oxidation during starvation, have been recognized for a long time. When the uh, Splanchic uptake of glucose decreases after the last meal. The orchestrated interplay of decreasing insulin levels 
increased sympathetic nervous system activity and increased growth hormone levels, increased lipolysis of triglycerides stored in adipose tissue, blah, blah, blah. So as I said, it's just liberating body fat. So you hit this point and, and there's an interesting, there, there's something I want you guys to recognize from our discussions on, on the metabolic switch. When I engage in a one meal a day, one day a week fast, which I do occasionally uh, for different health reasons and you know weight loss control or weight management. Uh, I, I have told you guys when I was doing it last year, because I, I usually do this kind of annually for a while, um, that you know have my last meal, dinner, maybe five or six p.m. and then I don't eat until the next dinner. Then my next six days of the week are, are pretty normal. And in that type of fasting in the literature, the goal is to get about 25% of your normal daily calories in that one meal. So it's not like you just save up 2000 calories and eat it in one meal. It's not the time restriction or the um, inter uh, or, or intermittent fasting span of time. It's that you also want it to be a decrease in actual calories. But I mentioned that around... 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, maybe noon the next day is when I really start to feel it. Like you wake up and anybody can skip breakfast, right? It's like you just skip breakfast, you're fine, you get into the day. By the time you get into, as they described it here, about the 14th hour, those blood products are low and you really start to feel it. It's not those uh, barometric emptiness feelings of your stomach being empty. It's not a hunger pang necessarily that's that's blood sugar related, it's that your available energy is just low and you feel that, you feel kind of hypoglycemic. Uh, that's, that's the metabolic switch. That's what's happening there. So as they're describing it with total fasting, think of the same thing happening even if you're still eating some protein and fat. You're on a ketogenic or low-carb diet. You will still feel those things except that you're you're putting in a little bit of fat into your diet uh, because it's a ketogenic diet and you have those calories so you buffer it but you still go through this process and if you are doing more of a balanced diet with carbs it delays it and so you may not feel it until the second or third day i often tell clients that are doing a more balanced normal carb you know low to moderate fat diet that around the second or third day, depending on how much you train or exercise, you're, you're going to feel kind of a low spot. And that's this. Uh, but if you were just totally fasting, it's going to be a little bit more of a punch to the gut. And it's going to it's going to happen pretty rapidly within about 12 to 16 hours. So here, here's a cool graphic they had, which just shows that at that very beginning stage, so think of the metabolic switch or metabolic positioning and on the you know bottom left XY axis corner there, you see post-absorptive, meaning you just consumed a meal. So all of that glucose, uh, gluconeogenesis, all that, like your body's dominantly using available carbs and glucose. As you move hour by hour by hour and you run out of blood sugar and liver glycogen, then you have to start increasing your liberation, your oxidation of lipids, and then you could even start creating ketone bodies and so forth eventually. So again, this this particular study was with, with fasting, um, but it, it just slows down if you're doing ketogenic or balanced type dieting. 
So, um, da, da, da. so fatty acid and glycerol turnovers increase robustly between 18 and 24 hours of starvation slash fasting and approximately two to three fold after three days of fasting. So again, think of your liver glycogen being empty. That's around the 14 to 18 hour mark. And then you're hitting 24 hours. So now your body's definitely not getting any calories. And so you really start to liberate body fat. That, that metabolic switch, bam, is happening in that first 24 hour period. With calories, with some carbs, it's softer and it's delayed. That's the only, only change. So short-term starvation, 84 hours, which I think is what, three and a half or four days. Um, and again, I just, I, it makes me cringe a little bit when I see that phrase starvation in here. It's, it's a fasting study, but again, research-wise starvation results in enhancement of adipose tissue responsiveness to epinephrine. This, oh, this is gonna, something I'm going to talk about a little bit later. Uh, the catecholine hormones that are more uh, driving, you know, lipolysis during exercise, your body actually becomes more sensitive to those. So a little point that I'll bring up later, when you are in a calorie deficit through either fasting, a ketogenic diet or a balanced, you know, carb diet, um, your body is actually even more responsive to using energy, to using fat, liberating fat by those epinephrine, norepinephrine uh, hormones. And that of course is because your body driven by glucagon and the catecholamines are, are looking for or sensitive to, as the researchers say here, um, you know, the need for energy. So as soon as you start moving a little bit, as soon as you start exercising or even non-exercise activity increases, boom, your body is starting to liberate more body fat because in the absence of, of glucose, that takes longer to convert. And so your body has to be ready for that. So that's an interesting little hack to understand. Uh, so recall that the metabolic switch, I think I've gone over this already here in the last few minutes, is not a literal linear switch, but it's gradual. So that chart that I showed you over hours, your body's just increasing its, its use of lipids and you even become better and better at it. As insulin sensitivity changes, uh, I think I have this in a slide coming up, uh, you, you start losing body fat even faster and more effectively. And there is a point in which the ketogenic crowd says, aha, look, for this entire short window of time, all of about a week or so, in a ketogenic diet, your body actually increases in its, its metabolic output, but then it actually declines. But there is this window, which is part of this transition of the metabolic switch. And it's also part of this sensitization because as I'll show you in a, in a few minutes, then things actually take a turn for the worse if you're not consuming carbs or you are just consuming too few of calories. So as I said, it doesn't take, you don't have to do this in three and a half days of fasting or 14 hours of fasting to even start that. You can take a much softer, gentler approach. And that's going to be part of the conclusion of, of today's, today's chat and today's study. Uh, so in addition to decreasing in insulin concentrations during progressive starvation slash fasting, there is substantial evidence that lipolysis is less sensitive to inhibition by insulin starvation, thereby enabling increased lipolysis. So right there, we actually kind of accelerate lipolysis. 
Uh, insulin sensitivity, of course, is occurring because insulin levels are coming down. So it looks like this is a good thing. You know, it looks like, wow, we shouldn't eat carbs. We should keep insulin low. Insulin must be the driving factor. This is where the whole insulin model of obesity came into existence. As you guys may know through some of our discussions, that has completely been upended. The insulin model is still an important part of fat loss and health maintenance, but it is absolutely not. Matter of fact, it's almost antithetical to the energy balance model, which we now know to be true. So let's uh, let's continue. I'll show you over the next couple slides here. Um, let me so. Insulin tolerance tests after 67 hours of starvation show less absolute suppression of fatty acid levels compared with an overnight fast. Even oral glucose tolerance tests after six days of starvation are unable to lower plasma fatty acids to the same absolute level as seen after an overnight fast. So after a while, six days of fasting, we become less responsive to fatty acid loss. And as you'll see here, I think it's the next sentence. This is also true in a more physiological setting. Meal-induced insulin secretion after 72 hours of starvation or three days of fasting does not suppress fatty acid to post-absorptive levels. In accord with this, CLAMP studies employing low insulin rates show that the lipolytic rates after 84 hours of starvation are higher compared with a post-absorptive state or right after you eat. So this is showing as soon as you get that far into a calorie deficit without carbohydrates specifically, again, keep in mind, they said, even though this is a starvation slash fasting study, they said there is direct application to general dieting. As soon as you are just not getting enough calorie intake or specifically enough carbohydrate, this insulin sensitivity starts to backfire. Matter of fact, it's even harsher for diabetics. And that's why if you look at all of the dietetic research and professionals, the registered dietitians out there, they would never put a diabetic on a low carb or ketogenic diet. That's just completely antithetical to, to the goals that we're trying to achieve. So fasting or starvation, you know, then of course you have to eventually get to a refeed, um, I'm not going to really talk about keto too much in that regard. Um, you're going to, you, you then expect insulin sensitivity to kind of rule the day. There's going to be this massive response. Uh, but because of metabolic suppression, because of calories and carbs being too low, uh, you end up having this yo-yo effect, which has been also been well-documented in research, that you simply, your body doesn't catch up fast enough you have a massive increase of storage, uh, particularly body fat, and yet you really don't do anything to the metabolic rate or the ability for insulin sensitivity to catch up. So moreover, there is some time delay to restore insulin sensitivity of lipolysis to post-absorptive levels upon meal ingestion. This delay is seen in virtually all other adaptations to starvation as well, which we will show later. Gradual but opposite, Gradual but opposite changes in glucose and lipid metabolism permit a smooth transition from the fed to the starved state to ensure fuel availability while simultaneously sparing glucose. Sparing glucose is also how you spare lean body mass, as they're describing. So glucose metabolism has been 
has also been studied extensively using tracer methodology and imaging studies. The changes in glucoregulatory hormones during starvation enable maintenance of a low rate of glucose production. Notably, falling insulin levels lead to diminished activation of the insulin receptor IR, which deactivates the downstream insulin receptor substrates, one of two, protein kinase. This stimulates uh, glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis while halting de novo lipogenesis. So we know that when you introduce carbs, you halt lipogenesis. Oh, no, I'm sorry, when you're, when you're, when you're dieting, you're, you're not going to create body fat. But as I said, th that glycogen is the critical middle step. So you have the insulin sensitivity happening. And then of course you're getting lipolysis. You know, that's, that's just part of that teeter totter of the metabolic switch. But in a healthy diet, there is that gradual transition. You don't get that massive insulin, uh, you know, downregulation. And when you just do keto, because you have some calories and at least protein and your body, you know, part of ketosis is gluconeogenesis using amino acids as glucose as a buffer, you know, that's, that's a next step in severity. And then of course, starvation and fasting does that in a much more rapid sense. So, so keying in on what they said about gradual and consistent in insulated, in insulated, insulin stimulated circumstances. So somebody has just been fed, they've, they've eaten glucose disposal occurs mainly in skeletal muscle and is mediated via the insulin signaling cascade. So part of what I thought was fascinating about this is they did an entire section on uh, exercise-induced metabolism in a starved state, or as they said, you could apply this to just a chronic calorie deficit. And they found that, I'm not going to go into that, I didn't put much into this because I thought it was just beyond what we're going to talk about today, uh, that glycogen levels in skeletal muscle, this was interesting to me, actually maintain very, very well, even during fasting. And when I explain metabolic positioning and the metabolic switch to people, you may recall, I talk about liver glycogen being very dynamic, your body, that's how your body's keeping blood sugar up. But you don't, you know, I usually use the phrase donate, you don't donate glucose glycogen into the bloodstream from muscle tissue, you have to work it, you know, you have to use that muscle tissue, use that glucose, then your body either replenishes it. Or if you are in a depleted state, a low calorie, low carb state, you don't replete it. And so any of us who have dieted understands you feel lethargic. You go in there to do a set of bicep curls or squats. You don't feel as strong. You don't feel as energetic. You don't feel that blood flow in the muscle. And we all typically reflexively say, well, yeah, I'm carb depleted. I don't have enough glycogen in the muscle. Actually, your body does preferentially protect that. And we, we do maintain a pretty good level of, of skeletal muscle glycogen, even if we have to, in a gluconeogenesis way, create it to, to store. So what's interesting there is even in a calorie deficit, your body's really tr trying hard to protect muscle loss. So you don't really have to fear that. Um, but at the same time, if you strategically, obviously I'm not a ketogenic proponent, but even in a calorie deficit where you're managing carbohydrates and you're obviously not getting all the carbohydrates you would love to have, 
you still want to selectively, strategically use carbohydrate intake for your training because it is a limited supply. When you use that muscle glycogen in a workout, you may be through that in a couple of sets. And then if you don't have the blood sugar coming in on the back end from a good pre-workout meal, you're just going to suffer. You're just not going to have the strength or the resilience or that that energetic feel of the workout. Uh, but it, But your body does like to again, preferentially protect it. It's just a very limited supply in, in workout terms. So notwithstanding different study designs, the above clamp studies show an average of a 44% reduction in glucose uptake after starvation, emphasizing the magnitude of the decreased glucose uptake. Moreover, uh, particular studies, they showed that 48 hours of refeeding, it took takes 48 hours of refeeding to reverse these adaptive changes in glucose metabolism. So this is, this is almost the whole ball game. This is, this is a really important part of this, this review. Uh, even when you start reintroducing food, like, like a lot of us like to have a calorie increase as coaches in somebody's diets, uh, some of the research on diet breaks now have become, um, you know, important to, to help people understand that maybe sometimes a calorie increase is best served, uh, not in just one meal, but maybe through the course of a day or even a two day kind of diet break. And this particular study, which I think I, if I remember the first slide, I think this was in 2015 or something, uh, maybe even a little bit earlier, um, you know, it really takes up to 48 hours of maintenance eating for you to truly even start to actualize. And so another thing I've always talked about, and you've, if, if you guys watch Contest Prep University, when we're describing the peaking process leading up to a contest, you'll hear often uh, that myself, Austin, or Adam will say, well, since it takes about 48 hours to fully assimilate glycogen, takes it since it takes 48 hours to, you know, seat that glucose into muscle fiber, and this, again, is confirmation. Uh, you know, the, the, this review, a uh, literature review, shows that it takes 48 hours to reverse those adaptive changes. Again, what's important when you go back to people who try to diet on too low of calories or they're consuming just a, a ketogenic zero-carb diet, every person doing that is going to binge at some point. They just will. Uh, I, I have not yet met a single person, and I would challenge anybody who says, I am a ketogenic dieter, I never eat carbohydrates, I stay in ketosis, trace ketosis, etc. Carbs are the devil, sugar is toxic, I just don't consume it. That person binges, and they don't want to admit it, but there is no way that they just don't, unless there's a true medical reason, intrinsic value. But I, I still have not run into anybody. Uh, matter of fact, in our last um, Contest Prep University Peak Intel, I talked about some of the limitations of ketogenic dieting, and I mentioned Dr. Dom Diagostino down in Florida, does a lot of research in this. And in their latest studies, because he is somebody who lives this ketogenic lifestyle. He's lost tons of muscle over the years. He doesn't care. He's committed to it. But he has even stretched to the point where he says, I know what I need to consume to stay in the level of ketosis I want. And it's not that I'm zero carbohydrates. It's just that I, I know what carb sources I can eat. I know the context. I know the amount. I know what I can eat to stay there. And it's not zero. Uh, and they've even started doing research with epilepsy 
and some of the other conditions that that can be helpful, helpful or important, you know, for a ketogenic diet. Uh, you know, kids with with traumatic brain surgery or brain uh, seizures and so forth. And some of their newest research, again, shows probably based on metabolic capacity that that people can have all kinds of varying levels of carbohydrate intake before they trigger seizures or have any kind of a medical complication. So again, it's not that you can't have them, it's dose dependent. And, and, and that, that becomes incredibly important knowing your physiology um, because if you're going to try to ascribe to a certain type of eating for health reasons that you believe are there, that it's not always just black or white. So, uh, you know, note that insulin resistance, not sensitivity, massive change, starvation decreases uh, insulin signaling. So there is a point in time where your body is in that literal starvation mode where you're losing the benefits, you're, you're unduly suppressing your metabolism in that insulin sensitivity will actually bite you in the butt. So moreover, liver and muscle glycogen kinetics differ essentially since liver shows, the liver shows obligatory loss of glycogen, whereas muscle glycogen content does not decrease and may even increase during starvation. So again, liver glycogen, muscle glycogen, metabolic switch. The fact that during starvation and ketosis, muscle glycogen which is already described as disposal dependent, remains normal or even higher, shows the preference for the body to support lean body mass preservation. Um, so all good indications of just making sure that we're not, you know, trying to lose, you know, too fast. If, if, if we're controlling this, you know, if, if we're not in a starvation fasting mode for a, a medical reason. So in summary, there's a major switch from glucose to fatty acid oxidation during starvation that needs some time to become apparent. Some time, meaning 14 to 18 hours if you're literally fasting, a little bit longer, a day or two if you're doing low-carb dieting, three to four days if you're doing balanced diets with some carbohydrate. A similar duration of time is required for reversal. A similar duration of time is required for reversal of these fasting-induced changes upon refeeding. These observations point to a notion that a gradual transition during starvation and refeeding guarantees substrate availability. One might hypothesize that this is due partly to the time required to restore or to deplete glycogen stores. This may be a consequence of the fact that enzyme activity is dependent, blah, blah, blah. I think they're very generous, very modest, to say one might hypothesize, I, I, it's it's in, it's entirely due to the time to restore or deplete glycogen stores, and you need to do that gradually, as gradually as you can. Um, you know, one big gigantic bolus of food for some kind of a calorie increase that you're even planning, um, you're going to have a certain percentage of that that repletes liver glycogen. But because that calorie load at one time is so high and insulin sensitivity now has changed so much, a large portion of that, even in a modestly controlled food intake, at that moment will be converted to body fat. Whereas, so, so if, if I were going to have a client have a, an increased calorie day, I want you to have five, six, 700 calories extra. So I know that statistically we're up to about maintenance levels. If they spread that out throughout the day in two or three meals, it's more likely to replenish liver glycogen and they're going to feel a little better, better muscle glycogen. If they have one great big meal, even if it's nice, clean, healthy carbohydrates, a portion of that's going to be converted to fatty acids. Um, 
So, you know, this is kind of a, I don't want to say an end around way of studying the metabolic switch, but it really got into some of the details uh, that I think they wanted in terms of showing up from a starvation or fasting model, because they could go through exactly how fast we get there. It was almost an accelerated way of studying this that made it more consistent across subjects and studies. So my take homes for this would be just brutally consistent confirmation of the timing of the metabolic switch from that 14 to 16 hour window that it takes to completely empty the liver. They actually showed in liver biopsies uh, in rat model studies that when you, when you have fasted for that long in human terms, it, it, your liver is down to about 15% of capacity, which is as low as it can get and still function. So you have, you have reached that, that, that liver glycogen level. And then depending on the speed of your workouts, how, how much you work out, frequency and so forth, you know, that's when you're going to deplete muscle glycogen. And then you've kind of reached that level. But again, uh, I, I think that the, the, the most important message here is that all of these things that can happen in both a positive and a negative way, all of the negatives can be tamped down and avoided if you're just not starving, literally, you know, fasting or just too low of a calorie intake, and you're still including some carbohydrates. So your insulin sensitivity doesn't go that far down. I didn't want to get into a lot of the pathophysiology, but when they were talking about diabetes and diabetic patients, you know, it, it, it's very apparent that the insulin model of obesity and so forth is, is just wrong. And that was part of their you know, there, there are reasons for studying this, but let's, uh, let's chat about it. Uh, I know that was a little bit of a technical topic, but, uh, anybody have any thoughts or questions? Kevin, you are like front and center in on my screen. So it looks like you, you need to talk. <laughs> it looks like I almost put you to sleep. You look pretty, pretty groggy there. Not at all. Uh, if anything, it's always the opposite when it's talking about patho stuff. Um, I can't really, uh, I really don't have much to say other than it's just, it's always, it, to me, learning about this or reinforcing metabolic switches, like learning about adrenergic, cholinergic receptor sites. I do it every six months because it's so fundamental understanding about basic in that context anatomy and medical uh, medicines in this context of dieting it's just so necessary to reinforce these concepts because it's, it's fundamentally critical to understand what's going on and is tangible so you can see how your food can have an impact and therefore make those better decisions if that's the case or at least weigh out is this my best decision right now and go from there so that's my, and it's just best time, you know, start of the year, et cetera, to, to bring this back in. But that's the biggest thing that I take away from talking about Medbox, which every time. I agree. And this particular review, as I mentioned a minute ago, it was just so dogmatically concrete with those time frames. And it, it was also a great review for me to recall that that terminology switch is best applied to the fact that biology is usually threshold based. 
And so you can be kind of monkeying around and here's what I'm doing for a diet and this and this and this. But until you really create that need for a, a switch in your body's substrates, because you could be kind of like low carb here, low calorie here, but then a higher meal here, you don't eat for six hours, then you eat 2000 calories at one meal. It's very, very difficult to create this environment for fat loss until you make that switch into lipolysis. And then the good parts of what we talked about today take over and make lipolysis faster and more efficient. Your body gets better at losing body fat. But if we trip that line, whenever I use the gas gauge metaphor, and I say, look, we, we take calories and carbs to a point where we reduce internally stored glycogen to about two thirds or three fourths of a tank. I mean, so we only have about a, a fourth of a tank left. That way between meals, we're getting close to empty and then we refill a little bit, close to empty, refill a little bit. The first question I always get is, well, then why not just take carbs all the way out? Why not just go to zero? Why not just go to empty? Well, then you get all the negative parts of this, which is oversensitivity to insulin and protection uh, by you know going into what people call the quote starvation mode. So I agree. I just I just love seeing this in such concrete terms. It's like an action potential. Yeah. Exactly. You, you need to cross that that threshold initially, you know, delicately, and then hopefully maintain there consistently and keep the benefits going, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, any any thoughts on your end, Doctor Souders? Just um, I'm trying to kind of wrap my head a little bit around how this would work in the intermittent fasting scenarios, just because out of curiosity the way these timeframes are. So like the classic is the 16-8. And, you know, that doesn't really seem to be a big problem in in this context um, because you're not not going to have um, such a long period. But like if you've got someone who's maybe doing, let's say 12 and 12, right? Or one meal a day or something how how is i'm trying to wrap my head about how is uh, on how is this going to work with the insulin signaling i mean clearly you're going to be depleting your your glycogen stores right so let's let's say you've got 20 hours where you're fasting and for when you eat and i'm i'm just putting it out there cuz i wanted to be like extreme enough to contrast with say 168 so let's say somebody's doing like the OMAD or the, you know, the 20 slash four. Um, so if you get to 20 hours, um, you know, you're you're in quote unquote starvation. Am I correct in that? So when you refeed and of course, you're going to put all your calories in in that really small window. So that is more likely to be increasing f- fat storage when you eat that. But at the same time, it's also... If you're working out, it looks like there's a preference to um, restore the skeletal muscle glycogen too. So I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around this in terms of if people are eating a, a sufficient amount of food and a, and a, you know a, a balanced mix of carbohydrates, what is that going to look like between the skeletal muscle um, replenishment versus the fat? storage. You know, I know that a lot of people use intermittent fasting um, as a tool for uh, for weight loss. And, and um, I'm just curious, you know, looking at this paper, when we, is there a time frame that might be 
quote unquote optimized for that That's pattern? Exactly. The, the, the whole thing comes down to timing. And I'll tell you what we know and what we don't know. So very current research has shown that the energy you know, balance model holds up and that whether you're doing 16.8 as a fasting window or 12.12 or not at all, just, just the same amount of calories whenever you want, zero difference, zero difference in fat loss. It's all energy balance, not to do with insulin signaling. But in the long term, if you keep doing like a 24 or a one meal a day type fast, then you are definitely going to be storing a little bit more body fat because, you know, think of, think of the person who is eating four or five meals a day, small meals. And so in those meal cycles at that, that meal bolus time, you don't convert anything to body fat. You're using it and anything that you're not using may be stored as muscle glycogen, but in the presence of insulin and, and all the other types of lipogenesis type, type signaling, you're going to have some that you restore as fat, and then you have to liberate that again, and that becomes less efficient. So over time, if, if somebody had the same amount of calories, let's say for six months, and one was eating five or six meals a day, one was eating one or two meals a day, you would just see a little bit less efficiency. And so the person who is trying to do long fasting states, they're, they're just losing a little bit of, of the result. Uh, it, but I think what we don't know is is exactly what that would be. They just haven't done studies to go that far out. Um, so a, a lot of the things that we do is this kind of speculation on the physiology. And that's why people got the insulin model so wrong. On paper, it looks obvious. Like, yes, insulin is the devil. Like, this is the problem. This is it. It all tracks. Here are the pathways. Problem is, in mechanistic studies, it doesn't happen that way because of right. all of these homeostatic adaptive changes. So I, I you know, I, I go back to even uh, the International Society of Sports Nutrition, they did a meta-analysis themselves on meal spacing. And they sort of all the literature out there, everything we could find in our own meta-analysis, the same amount of calories eaten between two meals a day and seven meals a day does not change your fat loss. So, you know, intermittent fast if you want, eat, tons of small meals, eat a couple bigger meals. It's just the amount of calories per day is going to be, you know, 99.9% .9 of your results. Makes sense. So, Amy, any, uh, any thoughts on your end? But I always kind of get off on a tangent with intermittent fasting, just because there are so many other things to consider hormonally speaking, especially for menstruating age women. Um, you know, a lot of patients will ask us about intermittent fasting, and I, I typically really discourage anyone who is still menstruating and wants to continue menstruating to even consider intermittent fasting for longer than like a 12-12, because some women, their bodies will immediately respond hormonally to that, like, lack of a feeding window, essentially, um, and really have some negative hormonal side effects. So I think that's something people don't necessarily think about when they read, you know, studies about a specific diet, having a specific outcome that like, that's in a very finite period that those studies are usually rather short. And like that accumulative effect of like stress on the body, if you're doing one of these really extreme forms of dieting, like you mentioned, can lead to just extreme binging and non-compliance, but also could have other cascading effects on the, on the way the body functions overall. You know, even if you're really determined to stick to it, it, it might not be the best thing for you. 
Well, the other thing it doesn't, besides hormones, that it doesn't take into account is your energy needs. One of the reasons I like people to be able to you know, selectively decide what size meal they want at what part of the day. And do you, do you need just two hours between these two meals or four or five hours, depending on the size of the meal, your energy expenditure, like that's just real life and it changes day to day. So if you arbitrarily say, well, I just don't eat for 16 hours because that's my quote diet. I mean, what if you wanted to do a three mile run in the morning and then you're not going to eat for another six hours or something. It, it just doesn't make sense, except that behaviorally humans love rules and boundaries. So if I'm your typical American just saying, hey, coach, give me a diet I can follow. OK, don't eat for 16 hours when well, I've taken away your evening meals, your nighttime snacks. You know, I'm making sure you're not grabbing a donut at the gas station on the way to work. Like it's just like a lot of behavioral things just kind of drift away. And that's truly the only advantage. But I don't count it as an advantage because you're not helping that person have to contend with real life. They're just, quote, following a diet, which they will then, through our laws of recidivism, you know, fail on eventually. Yeah. And also adding into that, that, you know, if, if fat loss is the only marker of success, you know, not body composition and or aesthetics, those are two very different things also. So someone can lose fat and have a very un. un aesthetic outcome and or a very unhealthy outcome. So like those two are not always the same. And that focus on like fat loss only or weight only can be so deceiving too, because it, it does not equate health or the aesthetic look you might want. Yeah. Uh, it, it makes me recall the fact that we did a research review on a fasting study that looked at all forms of fasting from time restricted to 12-12 to 16-8 to one meal a day to alternate day fasting. And they found the sweet spot, especially with ad libitum eating, was truly, you know, kind of the 12 12 mark. You know, that's that was like the sweet spot because it gives you enough glucose disposal time, but you're avoiding some of the things you're talking about. And the other boundary was the one meal a day, you know, because you, because a lot of people who do just fasting of some sort and they, they try to do a 24 hour fast. If you do it like I do it, which is dinner to dinner, you still get one meal that day. If you have to wait an entire full chronological day, you're really not eating for about 36. Then you start getting into some disruptive physiology. So anything from that 12-12 is a sweet spot to if you want to toy around with some, you know, one day fasting just to kind of help you, you know, push the bar a little bit and self-challenge, then that's, that's I think, the, the entire window we need to consider. But you guys are awesome. I know we took like almost six or eight weeks off with all the holidays here. So I was kind of nervous to get back on board here. Um, but thanks. And we'll do this again. I'm, I'm going to limit these to maybe every three or four weeks so we can I can put a little more time into it. And it's not as much of a burden on you guys. But uh, Jen, are you going to say something in closing there? Just I was going to thank you. <laughs> well, thank you guys. And uh, I'll we'll see you next time. I'll keep you posted on the next one we do. You guys have a good weekend. See ya.